Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church of Jefferson Hills. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by sharing and showing the love of Christ and inviting others to be recipients of Christ's love. Now, here is this week's message from Pastor Floyd Hughes. We're starting a series about faith to help us understand faith, how faith works, uh, what faith can do. Uh, And it's called Epic Faith Battles of History for a reason. Now, um, I I did that because uh, there is a YouTube channel called um, Epic Rap Battles of History. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that YouTube channel. If you haven't, don't go listen to it because it's a secular channel. One, if you're not in a rap, you're going to be confused. Two, if you are in a rap, then you know that some of the language is not Christian, okay? But basically what this channel did back when YouTube was just starting out uh, years and years ago uh, where people were putting videos on YouTube, uh, what they did is they created a series of videos which really helped expand YouTube because instead of random videos, it was like episodes from a TV channel uh, which people were looking forward to and each episode was only like two or three minutes long, some of them not even that long. So they had, what they did is they took people from history and had people dress up like them and had them do what are called rap battles, where they would kind of rap again. If you don't know what rap is, don't worry about that. But so, for example, they took Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, so two tech, you know, gurus, and they had them do this rap battle against one another to say who was better. Then they took uh, another popular one, Darth Vader versus Hitler. Now, even no, no one was trying to say that Hitler was good. They were each just saying, I'm a better supervillain than you, right? Um, which it was funny, but yeah. So then they took the most popular one, I think, uh, was this one, you know, Burger King versus this clown, yeah, McDonald's. So people who knew these people would go watch them do this rap battle because none of these people are into rap, that type of music. So that's what made it more popular. But the idea was they were pitting, taking one thing that's known and pitting it against another thing that's known. And then at the end of each rap battle where they would you know, spend time doing musical verses against one another, it would say, who won? You get to decide. You've heard both sides. Now you pick who the winner is, right? So um, what I was going to do was I was going to have two people come up and literally do a rap battle, uh, but I didn't see... Well, actually, Gary was one of the ones I was going to pick, and and probably Lanay, because they're the two most quietest people in the congregation, probably be the funniest. I even had microphones up here ready to go, uh, but Lanay is not here. Um, And then I was like, well, I can use Bonnie, but I think she might have got wind of it, so she's not here. Um, So yeah, uh, we won't do that. We'll we'll just go with explaining what the rap battle is and kind of why we're doing it, right? So just so you know, no one's going to be rapping. That's not what we're doing. We're we're not doing that musical thing. But what I wanted to do was kind of explain the different perspectives of language and how that impacts what we believe, right? Because... um, Language evolves, it changes over time, even though the concept may stay the same, we use language differently than some people who may be in our generation, but may be in a totally different community, 
right? So we'll use words here in Pittsburgh, like yinzer, that other people in the world will be like, I'm sorry, what did you say? Because they don't understand the concept. And in other places, they have phrases that they use that we may not understand the concept. And I, I think I shared this with you years ago, but like Christy and I, the first time we went to visit her parents in Connecticut, we're driving through some area, uh, and we're going like 35, 40 miles an hour, not fast, and we're looking around, we're like, oh, that's a nice house, oh, look at that park over there, and then we see a sign that says, speed table ahead. And we both looked at each other and like, what's a, and then boom, we were airborne, over a speed bump, because I had no idea, and she had no idea, that a speed table was a speed bump. So I'm like, was that a speed bump? She's like, no, that must be a speed table. And we like caught some air and flew over that thing, but because when we saw the sign, in my head, I'm thinking a speed table, and I, that's where it stopped. I had no idea what a speed table was. But everyone in that area probably knew, oh, speed table means speed bump ahead. And language that we all use in certain communities can mean one thing to us, but then to other people, they're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And the same is true in the church, right? Because in the church, we use language that people outside the church, they have no idea what we're talking about or they don't use it quite the same way that we use it. So they're confused when we speak to them in church terms, and they walk away thinking one thing, and we meant something totally different. As a matter of fact, the whole book of Romans, right? Um, the whole book of Romans is Paul explaining, here's all this theology, here's literally what it means. It's him painting pictures and taking time to explain all these concepts and theological things that people didn't understand. They had one understanding of it. He's like, no, your understanding is incorrect. Here's literally what this means. And he uses like, I think, 83 Old Testament terms to help clarify like, I know you, the Jewish people, you thought this, but that's not the case. Here's really what this means. Because they had one understanding of some of the terms. He's like, well, your understanding has misled you. And that's what can happen in the church. Because we use a lot of words that people don't understand. So some people can be misled. Some people can be confused. Some people can just be lost and walk away and think, I don't, I don't know what you guys in the church are doing because I have no idea what you're talking about. So terms that we use like exalt, right? We, we understand what that means. I want to exalt the glory of God. I want to lift it up. I want to praise him. But if you're in the secular world, now think about this. This is what? 25th of July, almost at the end of July, wow, when since January 1st, how many times have you used the word exult outside of the church in a conversation that wasn't about church stuff? We typically don't, right? Now, when we talk about like secular things, we use words like idolize and, and revere people but we don't use like we exalt this politician or uh, 
except for those people that exalted the Kardashians to like godlike status. That's totally different. But we don't use those words in normal conversation. We use other words. So when we use them, some people might get confused. But exalt fits perfectly for when we're talking about God. And it's, it's a no-brainer to us, right? Uh, another word that we use, and this is, this is one of the most popular words in Christianity, is sin. But the word literally has no other meaning outside of a biblical context. It's a word that's used in the Old Testament and the New Testament to talk about the fact that people or actions have literally missed the mark from God's expectation but when we go to people who aren't in the church, especially, you know, their first time or whatever, and we're like, you're a sinner, you're sinning, you're this and that, and they think it means I've done something wrong, which is not really true. It, 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 in its fullest context, it means no matter what you do, you can't do anything to meet God's expectation because of sin. And it, it causes confusion to people. And then the word that we're going to talk about today, right, faith. It is like the basis for Christianity. But if you ask 100 people, they'll give you at least 20, 30, 40, if not 100 different definitions of what faith means. If you go to different denominations, each denomination has a, just a slight little different variation of what the word faith means. Because uh, each has interpreted it its own way. And because each has interpreted it its own way, when we communicate it to people outside the church, they can get confused because they'll come to me and say, Floyd, what's faith? And I'll say it's A. They'll come to you and say, what's faith? And you'll say it's B. They'll go to some other denomination and say, hey, what's faith? And they'll say brick. Some other denomination will say orange. And they're like, I don't understand faith. And there are people who, when they use this term, they'll say things like, hey, faith can overcome anything, right? And, and some of you may have heard people say that, which is not quite true, right? Uh, it's based on the misunderstanding of 1 John. Uh, and here's what John says. In 1 John chapter 5, he says, everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith, and so people go out and say, our faith can overcome everything, but that's not quite right, which is why a couple of weeks ago we talked about reading the Bible in context, because what he really says is, who is it that overcomes the world? It's not our faith. It's only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So it's not our faith that overcomes anything. It's the person who puts their faith in God that can overcome anything, that can overcome any struggle. It's not my faith that gets me through. It's because of my faith in God that I am able to get through. And that can be misinterpreted and misunderstood. And some people will say, well, that's just, you know, that's not a big distinction. But it is because some people will say, hey, faith can overcome anything. But then those same people can come back and they'll say, hey, well, you didn't have enough faith to overcome your sickness, or that's why you're sick, or that's why you're still dealing with that struggle or that addiction or that financial problem, which is not true. There's no biblical basis for that. That's why it's important that we help, you know, kind of 
put a concrete understanding based on what God is communicating around the word faith because it impacts so much of our life. So um, faith is something that a believer expresses and then God responds to, right? And I use the word believer for a reason because uh, faith isn't limited to Christians, those of us who already stepped over that line of faith and, and have put our faith and trust in God. But even those who haven't done it yet, when they do, they're expressing a belief. And when they express a belief, then God responds to it. Sometimes he responds spiritually. Sometimes he responds physically with healing. But his priority is always to put us in right standing with him because of our faith. Now, I'm going to go on a little deep theology for a minute, but, but bear with me, all right? So Paul writes to the Philippians, and he says this. He says he's talking about himself. He says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And that word loss, it, it's a word that means like irreparable damaged goods that can't be repaired. They're now useless, right? Like if you get a flat tire, you're like, I hope I can repair it so I don't have to buy a new tire. You know, if something happens to your car, you're like, I hope I can compare, repair it so I don't have to buy a new car, especially now because the prices of car has gone like uh, I was, uh, uh, Brandon was here last week. He just left last night. And um, they got a flat tire. So uh, they, we went over to NTB, and he got new tires. And we were talking with the lady, the cashier, whatever they call them, uh, and, and she was talking about the fact that everything that has gone up, including the price of cars, I was like, I can't find a word for it. And she said, I know a word. It's disgusting how everything has gone up. Uh, a 10, 20% increase in things, understandable, because there were shortages, but things have gone up, something 75 to 275 to 400, 500% increase in price. Just disgusting, right? So, um, sorry, I had to throw that in there. But when we see things break, like a car, a tire, whatever, we hope we can repair it, because otherwise, we have to just trash it. It's garbage. It's a loss. There's nothing we can do. And that's what Paul says. And he says the things that he was talking about, gains, were his status, things that he achieved on his own. Right? He said, I'm, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrew. I'm, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I've done this, I've got that. All of these things I've accomplished, though, he said, I now consider them loss. Unrepairable waste useless things for the sake of Christ. He says, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. And the word he uses for garbage is a word for like human excrement. Like if we were texting this out, there'd be a little poop emoji that we would use for the word garbage because that's, that's what he meant. He said, that's what I consider it, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. He said, I've expressed my faith, my belief, right, in God, and because of that, God responds and imparts the righteousness of Jesus Christ to me. I'm put in right standing with God 
because of my faith, right? So then you get to a chapter like this in Mark where it's not a spiritual thing that someone is looking for because of their faith. Because in Mark, it says, a few days later when Jesus again, Mark chapter 2, a few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they couldn't get to him because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, lowered the mat the man was lying on. And then it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. So this is, again, not even the faith of the paralyzed man. This is the faith of the other four people who were bringing the sick person to Jesus. And their faith was, their belief was, if we get this man to Jesus, Jesus, we believe, will make him whole. And Jesus saw their faith, but he also saw the spiritual need of the man on the mat. Now, in the later verse, it tells us he did heal him physically. But the spiritual priority for God, when he responds to our faith, is always going to be first and foremost, I need to have you and put you in right standing with me. I need to make you spiritually whole. Because if you never get up and walk again, and you die on that mat, if you're spiritually whole, then we'll be together for eternity. But if you're not then everything is lost. Now, then he does heal him physically, but the goal of our faith is always going to be first and foremost, God is going to look to heal us spiritually before he looks to heal us physically or take care of that financial need or take care of whatever we're struggling with. So faith is something a believer expresses and then God responds to. And when we express it, then yes, we can, because of our faith, it's not our faith that does it, but we can overcome anything. We can overcome trials. We can overcome struggles. We can overcome addictions because of our faith. Now, uh, this brings us to our first um, faith battle of history, right? And And that's our faith versus our own history. Because what happens is a lot of people look and they say, well, I, my faith, I can't, I, can't, I can't trust that God will be able to overcome this big thing I did in my past. Whether it was an addiction, whether it was uh, some crime, whether it was some mistake that I made. And, and a lot of us will look and say, well, yeah, uh, I, I trust that God can handle this thing but I don't know if God can take care of this thing. And I want to show you because uh, my brother, and I I don't know if I shared this before, I probably did, uh, he passed in 2013, March of 2013, 
And before he passed, we had plenty of conversations. I won't say plenty, but lots of conversations on the phone where I would try to talk to him about God. And he would always say, nope, I, I, I can't, Floyd. That's good enough for you. But if I walked into the church, uh, God would strike the building with lightning because I've done too much wrong in my past for God to ever welcome me into his kingdom or forgive me. He said, I, I've just done too much. He's like, you have no idea all the things that I've done wrong. And I would always say, yeah, but God already knows that. And he's willing to love you anyway if you would just believe in him and put your faith in him. Now, I have no idea if he ever did that. But I want to show you someone who did do that. And not only were they able to overcome their past, they were able to overcome the past of an entire nation with one act of faith. So uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, right, this is what God says. He says, no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. Now, when it says assembly, some people think it means um, when, when they get together as a congregation in the temple. But sometimes it was used to just mean as a reference to the entire nation, like we just read when, when, uh, with Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles. So sometimes it referred to entire nation. One way or another, though God was saying, no Ammonite or no Moabite can enter into, whether it be the congregation or into the nation, they're not allowed in, right? And he says, not even in the 10th generation, and that doesn't mean... Ten generations from now, God's going to change his mind. It meant if today a Moabite were to try to come into the assembly, and you're like, well, you can't come in. You're a Moabite. And they were like, well, no, I'm not a Moabite. My great, 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 and you go back ten generations, grandmother, she was a Moabite, but no one else was. It's saying even if you go that far back, they can't come in. And before anyone complains, because people complain, you know, this is how mean God is or whatever. No, there was a reason. And God gives a reason. He said, here's why. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor, and Aram Naharim to pronounce a curse on you. And not only did they not come and meet them with bread and water, that's a euphemism for the phrase, they actually said, the, the Israelites said, hey, Moses sent them a letter and said, hey, uh, we want to come through your area. We're not going to take up any of the food from your land. Uh, we won't even drink your water. It's just quicker for us to pass through. Can we pass through your area? And they said, no, if you come through our area, we are going to come out against you and go to war with you. And they said, okay, we won't go through your area. And they said, even though you're not going to go through our area, and we talked about this before, they hired Balaam, son of Beor, to curse them. Verse 5 says this, however, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turn the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. And then he adds this, but do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. So because they tried to fight against them, and because they were steeped in witchcraft, God said, hey, don't, don't, don't associate with them. And this is what parents do, right? We do this for our kids. Hey, you know that, that kid you've been hanging out with? I don't want you to hang out with them. 
because he texts and drives and that's dangerous. I don't want you to hang out with them because they use drugs or they drink. I, I, and we tell our kids, I don't want you to associate with them. We're not saying they're bad. We're saying they're bad for you, right? Not judging them, but that's not what I want for you. So don't hang out with them. Don't bring them to the house. Don't ride in the car with them. Don't be friends with them. And God says, hey, this is as long as you live. And as long as you live, it means as long as the nation of Israel exists, don't hang out with the Moabites. Don't be friends with them. Don't spend time with them. But this is what faith does when you put your faith in God. So how many people are familiar with the book of Ruth? Right? We're all familiar with the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, so this is only a generation or two after God says this. There was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of what? Moab. A country that God said, hey, you're not supposed to hang out with them. Don't text with them. Don't party with them. Don't, don't, don't do anything with them. Don't be friends with them. And they decide, well, we're going to go live with them. And this is what happened. Now, Emelech, that was the man, Naomi's husband, died. She was left with her two sons. They married, what kind of women? Moabite women. One named Orpah and the other Ruth. And they lived there for about 10 years. So God said, hey, I don't want you to hang out with these people because, one, they're, 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 they're bad people. They're steeped in witchcraft. And they don't like you. They tried to kill you, so don't spend time with them. Have you ever had your parent tell you, hey, don't hang out with so-and-so because they're just using you, they don't like you, and then we didn't listen, and we found out the hard way that they were just using us, and they didn't like us? Yeah, this is what God is saying. But they not only went to live there, uh, Naomi's two sons, they married Moabite women. Now, this is what happened next. Right? When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, which, side note, God always comes to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters in law prepared to return home from there. So Naomi says, well, there's no longer any reason for me to be in Moab. I really shouldn't have been here anyway. So I'm going to head back to Jerusalem. Her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, they start to go with her. And she's like, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. There's no need for you to come with me because, I mean, yes, we, we've had 10 years together. Uh, we, 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 we've had family ties together. But my sons, who were your husbands, they're gone. And it's not like I have more people, that, more sons that you can marry. Um, stay here, live your life, and do your own thing, right? So she says, look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods go back with her. Because Orpah said, okay, I'm going to stay here. You go back. We'll keep in touch. We'll send Christmas. It wasn't Christmas yet, but you get the idea. We'll text. We'll, maybe we'll do family you know, letters and all that stuff, and we'll keep in touch. But yeah, I'm going to stay here in Moab with my people. And the reason why she said, and your gods, is because... Although Naomi went to Moab, she still practiced her Jewish faith. And when her daughter-in-laws came to live with her, 
they saw that in her. And there was probably a conversation where we had to say, hey, I understand that you have Moabite gods, and they didn't. Their gods were nothing like our God. First of all, they didn't exist, but your gods are nothing like our gods. But in my house, this is what we do. We pray to Jehovah. We pray for one another. And they probably saw as her two children got sick that she spent time praying for them. They probably saw her still doing sacrifices to a God who she still had her faith in. And now she's like, okay, look, you can go back to your God. And Orpah says, okay, I'm going to go back. We'll keep in touch. But Ruth doesn't. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Ruth says, hey, I, I, I know I could go back to my God here, but you have shown me something that makes me want to be in relationship with you and in relationship with the God that you serve. And she says this. She says, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord, and that word Lord is the Lord Jehovah, the word Jehovah, the name of like our covenant God. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And I know this is another thing when we communicate in our church, right? A lot of churches uh, have this thing where if you don't say this particular type of prayer, you're not a Christian. And here she makes an expression of faith that if someone made that today, you know, you know how when they do an altar call and people, the, the pastor will usually say, pray this prayer with me. And you think you have to repeat this prayer, which you don't because it's nowhere in the Bible. You just have to express this belief in what God is able to do. And that's what she does. And even though she is a Moabite woman who God has specifically said, hey, the Jewish people, they're not to hang out with you. They're not to spend time with you. They're not to even be friends with you. Because of this expression of faith, later on, Boaz marries Ruth, she became his wife, and when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The same God who said, hey, you can't be friends with the Moabites, is the same God that she expressed faith in and said, I'm, I, I believe that when eternity comes, I'm going to be with you and your God and God responded to her expression of faith. And it says the Lord enabled her to conceive because God was going to use her child for our good. And then you find out that uh, Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there, the women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. King David, the same king who, 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 who established the nation of Israel and whom God used to defeat all of the enemies of Israel, was a, and we're going to look at this, not 10th generation, he was, I think, a 4th generation Moabite, right? Because when you get to the book of Matthew and it's talking about the lineage of Jesus, 
It says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, and, and, and just give, bear with me a minute, because that's another woman who expressed faith in God, and so God responded by saving her, right? Because we all remember the, the, the story of Joshua and Joshua and Jericho, and the walls came down, and the only people that survived was a prostitute who told this people of Israel, I believe your God is able. And her and her family were the only people that survived because they said, hey, if you truly believe this, then just hang this red cord out your window, and when we come, we'll know that you truly believe it. And not knowing what was going to happen, she hung a red cord out of her window. The entire city came crashing down except for her apartment or condo or whatever it was at the time. So uh, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So there were only a few generations, not 10, on which from a Moabite to King David, but God still used it. And God still honored it because then we're told uh, that there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, uh, you can go all the way back to David and say, well, 14 and 14 is 28. Uh, but God didn't, you know, specify that if you go past 10, it's okay. He was kind of reiterating no matter how many generations, even 10, it's unacceptable. But here we see 14 generations in, Jesus was a direct descendant of a Moabite. And the whole Moabite people were able to be redeemed if they chose to put their faith, even though their history made God say no. But one person's faith made God say yes. So our faith is something that a believer expresses and God responds to in a powerful way. Whether it be to, to, to create a way uh, uh, for us to be able to have a relationship with him and make us spiritually whole, or whether it be to help us overcome a trial, a struggle, a medical issue, a financial issue, an addiction, a burden that we're dealing with. This is what our faith does. And this is what God does when we put our faith in him. <laughs>